It's a great blessing to be here with you all this morning, and uh, it's amazing you can travel lots of miles and show up on a Sunday morning, and there's the same brothers and sisters you saw last time, still serving the Lord, meeting faithfully, coming to hear from God's Word, and I appreciate that encouragement, your example, and your presence here this morning, and it's a special treat for me to get to be to uh, be the, the preacher this morning. It's, uh, it's like leading song services. I remember as a, as a young boy, we would lead song services, and I always got so much more out of the songs when I was up there leading. There was something about people singing it. The, the singing certainly sounds better when it's coming your direction, and it made you think about the words, and I always find I get the greatest blessing when I'm the one preaching because I have to think through what I'm saying, and uh, it feeds my soul even before I get to share it with you, and so I'm thankful for this privilege. I wonder if you ever ponder what God's up to in your troubles, in the difficulties of life. Maybe you wonder why God sometimes seems to delay deliverance, that he seems to be not quite as interested in removing the pain in our lives as we are. I wonder if you ever ponder why God chooses so often to give grace in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our crises, instead of simply removing those crises. Today we'll be considering the Old Testament story of the brazen serpent in the wilderness from Numbers chapter 21. And so I invite you to open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 21. I'd like to title our remarks, Hidden Mercy in Painful Providence. Hidden Mercy in Painful Providence. As you're turning there, we'll just note that the story of the brazen serpent is one of a number of stories in the book of Numbers in which the children of Israel have difficulties in the way, and they complain against God. Unless we think this morning that the story of the brazen serpent is so far removed from us, and maybe even irrelevant from us, yeah, it has some historical value of something that happened to other people. Unless we are tempted to think that, we, we want to hear from the Apostle Paul. I'll just mention this. Don't turn there. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul specifically mentions the story of the serpent in the wilderness as something, and I quote Paul, he says, It is our example to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of the serpents. So this morning as we turn in our Bibles to Numbers chapter 21, this is really a story not just about those people, but a story about humanity, a story that includes us. It's an example for us this morning, lest we should tempt Christ in the wilderness seasons of our own lives. And so following Paul's example, I want to draw out several key points from this remarkable story. And I want to follow the basic pattern of the passage because it appears to us in, in three stages. We, we first learn about the complaint and then about the crisis and then about the cure. The complaint, the crisis, and the cure. And so we find in verses 4 and 5 the complaint. Would you read with me in Numbers 21 verse 4? And they journeyed from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spake against God and against Moses, and they said, Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water. And our soul loatheth this light bread. 
I don't think we have to work very hard this morning to sympathize with the difficulties that Israel was facing. They were homeless nomads in a dangerous wilderness facing threats on every side. They had three kinds of threats. They had the four-legged threats. They had the two-legged threats. And this story tells us they had the no-legged threats. As a case in point, we begin in verse 1. We look that King Arad the Canaanite attacks them. He dwelt in the south, and when he heard that the Israel came by way of the spies, he then fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. Those are the two-legged enemies. And so Israel, in desperation, makes a vow with the Lord in their desperation for God to deliver their prisoners of war and to grant them victory over their enemies, and God delivers them. In verses 2 and 3, we read about that. And Israel vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If thou wilt indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. Remember, that was what God had already told them to do long before, and they didn't do it. And now they're they're willing. And the Lord hearkened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. And he called the name of the place Hormah, which simply means devoted to destruction. So don't name your kids Hormah. It's kind of a pretty name, but don't, don't do it devoted to destruction. But as Israel went forth in this sort of secondary obedience, they disobeyed God initially, and now after they'd been banned from the land of of Canaan in in Numbers 14, now they're interested in obeying God whenever they're in trouble. But in this path of obedience, of them actually exercising obedience to God, verse 4 tells us that things get really difficult. Verse 4, And they journeyed from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom, and the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. I wonder if anyone here ever finds himself much discouraged because of the way. In Israel's case, they responded to this discouragement not by open hands, open arms, crying out to God for his deliverance, for his grace, for his strength. They instead choose to, what, to do what we often do. They chose to complain against the Lord So instead of confessing their their belief in the promises and in God's faithfulness, they actually confess the opposite, their belief in God's unfaithfulness, their belief that God will not keep his promises. And so we read in verse 5, the content of their complaint is this, Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Now what did God promise to do for them? He promised to bring them up with a mighty hand to be their God. And they would open their mouths and he would fill it. And he would conquer the lands. He would go before them and grant them victory over the land of Canaan. But in their disobedience, in their complaint, in their unbelief, they here confess they believe the opposite. And they cite for their evidence, for their complaint, they say there's no bread, neither is any water. He said he was going to feed us, he was going to provide for us, and there's none of these things. But then there's a little telltale sign that they weren't being really honest. They said, our soul loathes this light bread. You see, at first they say, we don't have any bread. But then they admit, okay, God's been miraculously giving us bread six days a week, but we just don't like it. First Corinthians chapter 10 says that the rock in the wilderness that was Christ himself was following them wherever they went, giving them water. But they didn't want that water out of the rock. They wanted rivers, and they wanted rain, and they wanted geysers, and they wanted fountains. They didn't want what God was miraculously doing every day. They were overlooking everything God was doing and keeping his word because it didn't meet their expectations. They doubted that God would provide for them, would protect them. And they were overlooking with ungrateful hearts what God was already faithfully doing, even miraculously, in providing for them. They were, of course, 
being provided all these things by God, protected. They were giving grace to conquer the enemies. They were giving miraculous bread and water, but it wasn't good enough for them. It kind of reminds me of some teenagers who may complain to their parents that they don't have anything to wear. Translation, that doesn't mean they don't have anything to wear. That means they don't have anything new enough or cool enough or, or something their friends are going to think is really pretty or really handsome. That's the translation. Well, that doesn't change when you become an adult. We often overlook what we have, what God has faithfully given us. In fact, sometimes we overlook the things we have that were actually answers to prayer in the past. But somehow we grow callous to God's blessing and God's goodness and we look for more and look for bigger and better. This is something that follows us into adulthood. We often will feel quite justified to overlook what God has done, is doing, has promised to do, and we begin to critique and complain against God. It seems like Paul in 1 Corinthians was reading our mail when he says this story in Numbers 21 is a testament to God's faithfulness and to Israel's unfaithfulness, and it is a parable for us. Lest we lust after, let our hearts chase after what God has not given us as we complain about what he has. Maybe you're here today and you have a family that God has given you. Maybe even an answer to prayer. But through the years, you've grown to take your family for granted, and you want a family that's like that family over there. Maybe you have that job that was actually an answer to prayer, but now that job has grown wearisome and you want a job like that person over there. You, you have a car and that car was an answer to prayer, but now you're tired of that old car and you want the car that the neighbor has. Maybe you won't say it, but it's in your heart. You have a husband or wife that was a, an answer to prayer, but over time you, you want a spouse like that spouse over there. You see, instead of receiving God's grace that he has given us with gratitude and humility, we so often become entitled. And we take for granted what he is doing for us and we complain about what he hasn't or hasn't yet given to us. Reminds me of a story, and I, forgive me if uh, Brother Jeff has used this story before. I asked him, and he said he's never told it here. He may have forgotten. But there's a story about this monk that, uh, well, he, he was this, this, this young man that aspired to be a monk, and he, ordered this, he, he, he uh, joined this order of very strict monks in a monastery. And, and when he showed up, the leader of the order informed him as a new recruit that, that uh, they didn't do much, they didn't allow them to do much. In fact, they would spend most of their time locked up in a room in prayer and isolation, and they were only allowed to speak two words every year. And after the end of the first year, that new recruit showed up in front of the the, uh, the priest there, and he said, what are your two words? And he said, bed hard. And he turns around, and he goes back into isolation. A year goes by, comes and appears before him again, and the, the priest says, okay, what, what are your two words at the end of this year? And the young recruit says, food bad. He says, all right. And he leaves, and he goes back into isolation, comes back at the end of the third year, and he looks straight in the priest's eyes, and he says, I quit. And the, 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 the monk says, you know, I'm not surprised at all. All you've done since you've been here is complain. <laughs> Some of us might be thinking this morning, that you know, this story about the Israelites complaining in the desert, even though God was, even though the way was hard, but they weren't trusting God and they were complaining. You know, this new year, I'm going to do better about that. I'm not going to complain as much. In fact, I'm going to make myself three by five cards. I'm going to post them on my mirror and just don't cover the mirror in your car up, but maybe hang it from the mirror. You got to be careful with that. But I'm, I'm going to everywhere in my house, I'm going to put these reminders that I'm not going to complain against God. Well, I want to caution you to not be too hasty. 
Because the issue with Israel wasn't simply their complaining. Complaining is a symptom. Complaining is a symptom of something going on much deeper. Their verbal complaint was merely an outward expression of a distrusting, entitled, ungrateful heart that was overlooking God's merciful provisions, that was even coveting the ease that it looked like all the nations had. Their complaining was, in the end, a matter of the heart. And so is ours. And so while resolving to break a habit of complaining is a noble goal, I want to invite us this morning to pause a moment and to think, what is the root of our own complaining? What are the underlying heart issues that lead us to complain against God and those around us to live lives where we're not dripping with gratitude? But when you poke us, we, we bleed complaint so often. Now, there is a sociological phenomenon where people say that, that humans will complain to each other very frequently because that's a way we bond very quickly. You get on an elevator with someone and, and it's kind of awkward and weird. and silent. All you have to do is just complain about something. Man, these elevators, they're just so slow. Oh, yeah, they sure are. Immediate report. Or maybe say, man, I'm so tired of this cold, I can't wait for the, the warmth. If you complain a little bit, it's something about human nature that binds us together, which says a lot about human nature. And this brings us to the crisis. Because God wasn't going to let Israel, even though they were going through difficult times, because they weren't going through that difficulty faithfully, God was going to teach them a lesson for their good, and he brings a crisis. In verses 6 and 7, we find the crisis. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people. And much people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. I don't mean to be overly dramatic when I use the word crisis. But to me, living in the middle of a bunch of uh, an infestation of miles wide of poisonous snakes qualifies as a crisis. In psychology, they call the fear of snakes ophidophobia. But in South Georgia, we just called it having your head screwed on straight. If you're afraid of, of snakes, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that um, among the churches of the living God, we don't handle snakes. And uh, this is a good story to, to illustrate that. They come to him and they promptly admit, we have sinned. I wonder, do you, do you think that God would ever do something like this in your life? I don't mean necessarily would he send snakes into your yard or your house. But would God ever send something difficult into your life or mine to teach us a lesson? To get, our, to get our attention, to bring us to a place of confession and trust and repentance. Would he do that? The testimony of Scripture is that he does that. In fact, historically, the Baptist forefathers, they affirmed this very specifically in their, their writings and their affirmations in the London Baptist Confession of Faith. When they talk about, in chapter 5, God's providence, they have a whole section on this very idea. This is what they said. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God does often times leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own hearts. That's the hardest thing for God to ever do is just leave us to ourselves for a little time. Yeah. Leave us to our own thoughts. Leave us to our own inclinations. And he says sometimes or oftentimes God will do that for a season. And he does this and they say here's the reason. To chasten them for former sins 
or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin. What wise words. The, the London Baptists and the Westminster Confession of Faith before them that originally penned these words. And here's how they conclude that section. So that whatsoever befalls any of God's elect is by his appointment for his glory and for their good. What powerful words to think that by divine appointment, everything that touches our lives, all the disappointments, all the joys, all the answered prayers, all the delayed in God's answers to our prayers, he says, befalls us by his appointment for his glory and for our good. This is something that gives us cause for great hope. It amazes me just how many people today seek to detach God from anything painful in our lives. You've ever heard people talk about that? Maybe you've done it yourself. We want to get God off the hook. Something bad happens. They'll interview a preacher on, on, on after 9-11. They, they interviewed a number of, of well-known pastors throughout the United States. And, and almost invariably, it was a rare thing to hear a pastor talk about God's providence or appeal to God's will or appeal to judgment or chastisement. It was always letting God off the hook. That this couldn't have been in God's plan. This is a hard truth. That's why I titled the message God's Painful Providence. It's a topic we don't often like to think about. It amazes me just how many times we seek to detach God from it. But let me tell you what we do when we do that. When we seek to detach God from the painful things in our lives and we point the finger at people around us, we point the finger even at, at Satan, and, and, and we want to remove God from the equation. We do, according to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 8, this is what we do. If ye be without chastisement, he says, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. That is, in seeking to deny that God wisely and lovingly appoints the afflictions in our lives to train us and sanctify us, we inadvertently bastardize ourselves. We look with envy at the orphan and we say, I would rather be an orphan with no father than to have a father who lovingly and wisely allocates pain into my life. Scripture, on the other hand, it assures us that God only chastens us for our good. Psalm 94, 12, he says, Blessed is the man whom thou chastenest, O Lord, and teachest him out of thy law. A verse is kind of off the beaten path for us often. It's 1 Corinthians 11, verse 32. 1 Corinthians 11.32 says this, But when we, the church of Jesus, are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, so that we should not be condemned with the world. You see the difference there between how God, the painful things in the lives of the world versus God's children? It is a chastisement. It is a sanctification. It is a training. It is God drawing us into a higher state of spirituality and dependence and love for him when he judges us. When he judges the world, it's for their everlasting condemnation. Wouldn't you rather be chastened by the Father that loves you? That his rod would be something that comforts you rather than be crushed by the stone as Jesus talks about? It's better to, to trip over the rock and be broken than to be under the rock and be crushed. By this, he means that when God judges his people, he chastens us for our good. When he judges the world, it's for their condemnation. We've all known children that weren't chastened. Maybe the parents thought that it was 
for the child's good that they let the child pursue their own ways but the fallen unchecked impulses of that fallen nature in that child only grow with the child and they follow them into adulthood into the workforce into marriage and parenting and no i'm not suggesting that parents here feed a rattlesnake under the covers the next time their teenager doesn't want to get up to go to school but loving discipline is never mere punishment You see, one of the temptations that Satan likes to send our way whenever the way does get really hard is the temptation to believe that God doesn't love us. And that's the exact opposite of God's loving chastisement. It's because he loves us as his children that he doesn't just let us keep going our way. But he will tempt us to think that God doesn't love us, that this is punishment, not chastisement, that we must have done something terrible and it's too late and we're never going to get back to where we should have been. But loving discipline is never mere punishment. It is painful accountability designed to train us in righteousness. Painful providence is an expression of God's love for us and his hatred for the sin that remains in us. That's why it's painful. If we didn't have any sin, we wouldn't need painful providence. And that's what heaven's going to be. We're not going to have any sin. We're going to be completely redeemed. There will be no sin nature. There will be no sinful inclinations. And there will be no sinful behavior. And thus there will be no chastisement in glory. But painful providence is God's love for us expressed as hatred for the sin that remains in us. That's why wise parents never discipline out of anger or vengeance. Because it's not what discipline's for. It muddies the waters. And as Paul says in Ephesians 6, it creates resentment in children. God never chastens us vengefully or in his wrath. Now, at this point, I want to briefly digress for a moment because this is a topic we have to be very careful about, and we have to maybe debunk a few things that we receive from culture when it comes to the difficult aspects of life. There's, because it's such a ubiquitous, it's such a, a common universal problem, we all have issues in our lives, there's so many messages coming to us from our culture. And I want to digress and just offer an important caveat in this discussion of painful providence. That not that even though all suffering does come from sin, because without sin there'd be no pain in the world. Death came by sin, passed upon all people. Ultimately sin is responsible for all suffering. Not every painful thing that happens in our life is because you did something bad. As if God is like this cosmic uh uh karma machine right that you put in the two quarters and you get the bag of potato chips right that god is sort of there held and bound by the laws of karma or cause and effect and that even god can't change and if you do a bad thing then he gives you a bad thing right that's karma that that's the way the world operates the assumption that if if something is going well with you then you must be a really good person and as soon as something bad happens to you 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 must have done something bad. This is actually the assumption of Job's friends in the book of Job. They come to Job and they say, confess your sins, man, and God will lift the, the heavy hand off of you. And Job says, I've been confessing my sins every day. Every day I, I make an offering for my 10 kids and, and I confess their sins. I don't have anything to confess. There's nothing between me and God. I've been, I, I stay on good terms with God. And they said, you're hiding something. You must be deeply wicked you must be corrupting you must be oppressing the poor you must be uh, uh, receiving bribes they couldn't understand the fact that god might have plans bigger and outside the bounds of this simple situation of karma that job must have been doing something really bad in our culture that's the way we think about it hey if, if 
If things are going well for us and life is pretty easy at the moment, then we must be really good people. And of course, that doesn't breed gratitude to God, that breeds self-righteousness. And then when something bad happens to us, we want to blame other people or want to blame ourselves, we want to think that God doesn't love us. There's a story in the Bible in John chapter 9 that illustrates this idea very well, that God's purposes are actually bigger than mere retribution of sin. That God's plans and his purposes are complex. They're beyond our understanding. They're higher than our ways. And it's not a simply one-to-one relationship of chastisement and sin. Because as, as the psalmist said, if God should mark iniquity, who could stand? If God really was rewarding us for all our wicked deeds that we do on a daily basis, we'd, none of us would be here. We'd be crushed beneath his justice. And that's not how God deals with us. John chapter 9 and verse 3, you find this, this man who had been born blind. And the disciples asked Jesus a very important question that betrayed their inborn sense of karma. Even though karma is a, formally, it's an Eastern idea. They said, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In other words, someone must have done something really bad for this man to have been born blind. And here he is, all his life begging. And Jesus says this, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God will be manifest in him. And then he heals the man. And people glorify God, and many believe in Jesus. You see, God had a design, a purpose for that man's lifetime of pain, and that was the magnification of Jesus Christ, and that man's joy in God and his faith in Jesus Christ. Remember later, he was questioned, and they were like, who is this man that did this to you? And he says, I'm not sure exactly who he is or, or what kind of laws he must be breaking that you guys observe, but all I know is that I was blind, and now I see. And later on, you find him coming to faith in Jesus. What a beautiful story of God's purposes that are bigger than chastisement. So in this message on chastisement, here's the caveat. There's no one-to-one relationship. If something's going hard in your life, it doesn't mean that you've necessarily sinned in the sense that you sin and now God's going to punish you. Because if that was the way it was, again, we'd all be crushed. But we do know that when he's sending us chastisement or he has purposes for our good, they're always sent as hidden mercy to glorify his son and to bring about our eternal good. Let's consider lastly the cure in verses 8 through 9. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and it shall come to pass that every time that one is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Something really stands out odd to me about this method God uses to cure Israel's deadly distress. You see, when the people began to die of snake bites, they immediately confessed their sin and pled with Moses. Do you remember what they asked Moses? That God would remove the serpents. But we find in this cure that God doesn't remove the serpents. He does something better. Instead of God removing the snakes, he provides them healing in the midst of it. Now, how could that possibly be better? If you just back up to Exodus chapter 8 and verses 11 through 15, we find that he certainly could have removed the snakes like he had the plague of frogs in Egypt. They disappeared. Or, excuse me, he could have killed them. God killed all the frogs. All the frogs died and they stank and it was terrible, but at least the snake, a dead snake's better than a living snake, you know, if you ask me. 
Or he could have made the snakes vanish like he had the plague of flies. The flies came in, he sent a strong wind, and all the flies were gone when the plague was gone. But he didn't do that with the snakes. He could have. Instead, we find in verse 8 that he told Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, he shall live. Now this is, I mean, to me, it sounds like a very inefficient way to solve their problem. And I'm sure to them at the moment it seemed rather inefficient as well. I mean, just think about what would have to take place for Moses to provide this cure. While the snakes are continuing to slither through the camp and bite people and crawl into people's bedding and up people's pant legs, Moses had to find enough bronze in the camp to fashion a pretty large serpent big enough to be seen when held upon a pole. That's a lot of earrings. That's a lot of bracelets and rings. Then they had to build a fire and they had to be able to I'm not sure if it was a hole in the ground and get it really hot so they could melt down the brass. It had to be a pretty big fire. It had to get pretty hot. A little bit of time there consumed to make all this bronze melt. And then they had to melt it all down, which takes time. And then they had to forge the metal into the right shape. Then they had to secure it to the pole. All this time, the people were still getting bitten. I want to ask you a question, you young folks here. Jonathan, don't you think it would have been much faster for God simply to snap his fingers and just remove all the snakes? I mean, that's what they asked him to do, right? Good answer. It would have been much faster for God to just answer their prayer like they'd asked it. Lord, remove these snakes. We've sinned. We've learned our lesson. God says, no, you haven't. God chose to provide a cure that brought transforming grace in the midst of the trial. It would have been much more efficient for God to remove the snakes, but efficiency wasn't God's goal. Their sanctification was the goal. Maybe you've questioned God's methods and his timetable in the midst of your own sorrows. Maybe you've felt the bite of broken dreams, the sting of relational difficulties, the, the lingering ache of dry seasons in your spiritual walk, the poisonous fangs of physical disability. The gnawing fear of financial insecurity, the hissing threats of criticism and rejection. We could go on and on. All the things that we endure that we would ask God to remove from us. But here's the raw reality before us, my brothers and sisters. The snakes weren't Israel's biggest problem. As hard to imagine as that is. Their unbelieving, ungrateful, fearful, and resentful hearts were their biggest problem. God said in Numbers 14, 11, he asks Moses of that generation, how long will this people provoke me and how long will it be ere they believe me for all the signs which I've showed unto them? Horrific as the snakes must have been, they were only a secondary problem. In fact, the problem of the snakes only came about because of the more fundamental problem, their disobedience and their rebellion against God. But amazingly, God, he's, he's pretty wise. In sending this snake on a pole solution, he addresses both issues, both the deadly serpents and the unsanctified hearts of the Israelites. Now, here are three ways that we see God's snake on a pole cure. As strange as it seemed, as inefficient as it may seem, there are three ways this addressed the hearts of the Israelites. First, the serpent on a pole cure required them to exercise faith for healing. If God had simply taken the snakes away, they wouldn't have had to believe anything. 
Verse 8, we read, It shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten when he looks upon it shall live. You'd have to, you'd have to believe that God's going to keep his word. You're going to have to believe that you stand in need of that healing. You're going to have to believe that God is going to have the power through that uh, obedience of the snake on a pole. He's going to heal you. It takes faith to look upon that snake and be healed. So the cure required of them to trust God's provision when bitten. If unbelief was their major fundamental problem, God says, I'm going to come up with a solution that's going to answer your prayers, but it's going to address your heart. They would have to tie on a tourniquet when they were bitten. They'd have to run to where they could see the serpent. They'd have to look and cast their eyes upon it, believing God would impart healing grace. And brothers, I'm, I'm confident that whenever God is working a cures in our lives, that he's doing the same exact thing. He's doing it in such a way that we are forced to trust him and to be drawn closer to him in faith. In the midst of our broken dreams, faith is required to trust that the story God is writing is actually a better story than you and I would have written of our own lives. Do you believe that? So much of the time, no. But it's true. In the midst of our relational difficulties, faith is required to seek solace in the Lord so that we can say with David, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon the earth that I desire besides thee. Relational difficulties will draw us near to God when we realize he's the only one we have fully and eternally. In the midst of the dry seasons of our spiritual walks, faith is required to believe that God is at work and he will yet restore unto us the joy of his salvation. Do you believe that? In the midst of our aging or physical disability, faith is required to affirm with Job the resurrection of the body one day when he says, those skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I will see the Lord. And to say with Paul, though our outward man is perishing, our inward man is being renewed day by day, it takes faith to believe that, brothers and sisters. In the midst of financial insecurity, faith is required to know, as Jesus calls us to in Matthew 6, that the same God who clothes the flowers of the field, who feeds the sparrows of the air, will provide for his children. In the midst of criticism and rejection by others, faith is required to boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. You see, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. But there's something else that God does to address the heart in this snake on a pole cure. The snake on a pole cure that was that seemed to be delayed and it seemed to be inefficient, it was forcing Israel to reckon with their sin and its consequences. If you just simply remove the consequences of their sins, They've got the memory of a, of a hamster, right? That, that's the way we live. If you just simply remove us from our difficulties, we immediately forget God. It's the truth of our nature. Thus, they were forced to reckon with their sin and its consequences. Even after the brazen serpent was in the midst of the camp, even though the healing was there and available, Israelites still had to get bitten by the snakes. Even after receiving the healing, they would still bear the scars of their sin. They would still, for generations, be able to show their children. You see that? You see those fang marks? You see that scab? You see that scar? I don't have the use of my hand like I used to when I was 25 years old because I disobeyed God. I was complaining against Him, and He sent serpents. And in His mercy, He provided a healing for me. You see, even though the Lord delivers us from our sins, most often, Our sins still leave scars. 
You've probably heard the story of a father who, he was a wise father, and he took his young son, who he, they were having lots of behavioral issues with their young son, and he told his son to, to take a hammer and a box of nails, and he walks him into the backyard, and he shows him this big old tree, and he says, I want you to take every nail in this box, and I want you to hammer into that tree. One nail for every mean thing you've said to your sister, for every time you've lied to your mama, for every time you've, you've uh, unprovoked, you've hurt an animal, and you enjoy doing it. A nail for everything you can think of that you've done wrong. And the boy uses all the nails up, hammers them all in the tree. And then the father reminds him, he says, son, you've heard this before and at church that Jesus took our sins upon himself and Jesus was nailed to a tree. And in having Jesus nailed to that tree, he was bearing our sins. Our sins were nailed to that tree and our sins are on that tree and will never be taken away from that tree. And then the father says, son, I want you to take that, take that hammer and I want you to remove all those nails from the tree. So the little boy gets the hammer and he takes out every last nail of that tree. And when he was finally done, he tells his dad and his dad walks over there and he says, good job, son. But you see that tree there. You see all those holes? Those holes are going to be there for as long as this tree stands. Some sap is going to come out of those holes and it's going to scar over and there's going to be little knots. And as old as this tree is and as long as it lives, you're going to see all these scars in this tree. And that's the way sin works, son. Even though God may forgive us, may nail our sins to the tree, may remove them from us as far as the east is from the west, this side of heaven, the scars will remain. And so the hidden mercy of God's painful providence was that they would be forced to remember, and as the confession we read a little bit ago said, be forced to be humbled by a remembrance and a reckoning with the sinfulness of their hearts as a physical reminder of the exceeding sinfulness of sin and its lingering consequences. So the snake on a pole solution required, number one, them to exercise faith, which addressed their unbelief, and it forced them to reckon with the sinfulness of their sins instead of having that immediately removed from their awareness. But there's a third, and a last one. I'm going to close after this. A third and an even greater mercy hidden in God's weaving into this narrative before us. Namely, that God's serpent on a pole cure pointed to God's final solution for sin in the crucifixion of his son, Jesus Christ. In John chapter 3, in John's gospel chapter 3, Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, this man who was a ruler of the Jews. He was a Pharisee. People looked to him to, under, to explain to them the meaning of the law. And yet there was something he didn't understand. He didn't understand the fundamental need of humans Males, females, men, women, boys and girls to have new hearts given to us from above. In his understanding, if God gave us the law, we should be able to keep it. And if we keep it, we're good people. And we stay in covenant with God. If we break it, we're pagans and we break covenant with God. And Jesus told him something, that there's something fundamental about every human being, that we stand in need of a new birth. You must be born again, Jesus told him. And he said, that's foreign to me. What do you mean I have to get back into my mother's womb as a grown man? And Jesus explained to him, he was talking about the spirit of God that had to come down upon the heart of, a, of an individual and give them new life so that they could see the kingdom, so that they desire the kingdom, and so that they could enter the kingdom. But all that hinges upon something that Jesus Christ came to do. The work of the spirit is but the application of something Jesus came to accomplish. And we read about this in John 3, verses 14 and 15. Jesus says to Nicodemus, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
You see, God didn't, and in fact, he could not have simply overlooked our sins, simply removed our sins, simply snapped his fingers and pretended as if we had not offended his holiness. He had to make a payment for sin in full, and so he sent Jesus to be our substitute. Fascinatingly, in Numbers chapter 21, when it talks about the fiery serpents, why do you think the translators translate it fiery serpents? It's because the word there that's translated fiery serpents is seraphim, the the burning ones. We read about seraphim another time in the Old Testament. In in Isaiah chapter 6, the seraphim were the burning ones who who are over the throne of God with these wings, these six wings, covering their eyes, covering their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The same seraphim as it were. They were bearing witness to God's holiness in the wilderness when people retorted against God, when they responded against God and complained against God. Every bite that was made upon those Israelites was bearing witness to the holiness of God, that God doesn't excuse sin and he cannot. The same seraphim, as it were, who were in Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6 were crying out day and night, bearing witness to God's holiness. And when Jesus was on the cross, having, as it were, become a seraphim, become the one who is now experiencing the burning fires of hell. Jesus Christ, who as it were had been injected with the venom of our own sins in his own body, lifted up on the cross, having become sin for us, was cursed by God, being made a curse for us because cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. Jesus, who had perfectly obeyed the Father, Jesus, who had perfectly submitted to God's law his entire life, Jesus, who had perfectly lived out the story written in the annals of eternity in God's eternal decree, Jesus obediently surrendered himself fully to be our sin bearer. Jesus was nailed to that rugged tree of the cross. Jesus was lifted up for all to behold in order to redeem us from the curse of the law. Jesus was our serpent on a pole made sin for us so that all who by grace look upon him in faith live. We're counted righteous. We're brought to repentance. We're sanctified by God's spirit. We are guaranteed to be raised again to glory at the last day. This is our hope, dear family of God. And thus we see there's no time in this life in which God intends for us simply to live pain-free lives but rather than in every trial, in every sin, in every heartache, in every crisis, our loving Father is calling upon us to look once again towards His Son for grace to help in time of need. The hidden mercy of God's painful providence is that God is not in the business of merely changing our circumstances. He's not in the business of merely changing our eternal destiny. He's in the business of changing our hearts to hate the things he hates, to love the things he loves, to trust him, to draw near to him, to resemble the heart of Jesus. And so my prayer as I close this morning is that every, everyone under the sound of my voice today would, would look in faith upon Jesus, the ultimate cure of all of our sins. And in looking, live. May God bless you is my prayer. This we believe all.